I just wanted to sort of preface this conversation, if you will, by saying that one of the reasons you've come to my mind was uh, when I told you, Dan, we should, you know, interview you, uh, is actually when I heat up my food. And uh, <laughs> basically, I just, I noticed that when I sometimes microwave my food in, at my workplace, I'm using a Claritone microwave. <laughs> so. That definitely has nothing to do with, with my the company that my father started back in the 60s. But I'm guessing at some point that name, you know, after the company <laughs> went belly up, I think that name was, was out there and it got plastered on a whole lot of things. They certainly yeah. weren't in the microwave business in the 1960s. Yeah, just sort of, it, it just made me curious. So. That's um, funny. The first question I'd like to ask you is, in our email exchange, you said that you see long-form journalism uh, sort of switching over to rapid-fire journalism and Twitter and the internet, those being sort of the main culprits. Um, what do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of trends have kind of conspired, so to speak, against thoughtful, slow, deeply researched magazine journalism in the past decade or two. Um, you, the, just the, the advent of the internet generally um, and broadly, of course, undermined um, the magazine business model. I mean, all journalism business model to some degree, but certainly the magazine business model and the fact that that um, people are less and less willing to pay for journalism along the way, I think has been one of the, the biggest difficulties. And then you can combine that with social media and with the rise of Twitter and with the rise of of, or I guess the democratization, so-called, of, of journalism, where just about anyone who's on the scene uh, can effectively be a reporter, and the sense that we get our news not just from one deep-thinking kind of official source, but we gather our news, all of us now, from so many different places. And all of that has had some fantastic consequences and in some ways I think has, has been undeniably good for the business of news gathering. Um, it's had some really negative um, consequences too. And I think just looking at it from the very biased perspective of a magazine journalist, you know, our entire industry has been undercut, basically cut away. I can look back and I think about when I started in the journalism business. I went to Columbia University School of Journalism and I got out in the early 1990s and I was lucky enough to get a job at first at, at Forbes magazine and then Fortune magazine um, initially. And you know, it's so funny, this, is, this sounds silly, but I look back now and I realize we really had such, I guess what you would call solid, really middle-class jobs um, that had pension plans and we received stock options. I mean, these are almost, un these are unimaginable benefits for journalists today. Um, we, we received really good salaries. I mean, I, I'm almost aghast when I think back and I was making at Fortune magazine in the 1990s. 
150,000 US dollars. I mean, it's, a, it's unimaginable that, that you could make that kind of money, I think, in, in sort of basic magazine journalism today. And, um, and that wasn't for, you know, I wrote a lot of kind of big, heavy hitting cover stories, but typically I would say I wrote four, maybe five stories a year. I mean, we're not talking about having to churn stuff out and it was thoughtful. There was a lot of opportunity to do very serious, intense research. And when I then left Fortune and I joined Vanity Fair and it was exactly the same thing. I was being paid very generously. The benefits were, were magnificent in hindsight. And I, and I think most importantly, you know, of course, the, the salary is the most obvious thing because as anyone who has attempted to sell a magazine story in recent years can attest, you know, you're lucky these days if you can get 50 cents a word for an article. I mean, 50 cents a word is not a living wage. I should tell anyone out there who doesn't really know about what it takes to write a magazine article. You know, back in the day in Bandy Fair, I was routinely paid $5 a word. I no doubt there were journalists with bigger names than me who were being paid even more than that. But $5 a word today, you know, if you said that to someone, they would think you were out of your mind. It's just unimaginable. So, but, but I think beyond the, the pay, beyond the money, which is obviously critical, because if you want people to be able to earn a living wage, if you want people to commit their careers to it, if you want them to be able to get to a point where eventually they can maybe pay for a mortgage on a home. And, and my colleagues all did those things. You know, they lived, if not in Manhattan itself, they were in Brooklyn, they were in nice suburbs of New York City, where there were in good public school systems, they were able to buy homes, all, all these, all these things. Aside from money, I think what was so critical to the system we had in magazine writing and the system of, of staff jobs was the support. So we had real, again, well-paid editors um, who knew how to draw out stories, who knew how to really help you guide your reporting, who, frankly, too, you could have serious conversations with about ethical issues that came up when you had problems with sources, issues that that crop up. Should you trust a source? These were editors who were very experienced, who you could really use as a sounding board and with whom you had developed a relationship over many, 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 many years. And there was this extraordinary grounding. And I, it, I think it's it's just a reminder. I mean, great journalism is really difficult and it's also expensive in a lot of cases. And so I think without that support system, both the financial and the professional support system, it's very hard to do what was once done on that front. So how do you see the difference between uh, working in the newsroom back then compared to nowadays? Um, you know, you compare it to more of a modern uh, media kind of organization. So I, I sometimes ask myself, I, I wonder sometimes if I hadn't had the tremendous um, benefit of working in the kinds of, or for the kinds of magazines that I worked on staff, if I would be able to pull off the kind of work that I continue to do today as a freelancer. 
because I think that training we had working in a magazine, um, um, you know, with other staff where we sat around and had intense editorial discussions about whether stories deserve to be to be run or not, and whether they were well reported enough, and where we worked often as a team to say, hey, you know, Nina, you're working on that story. I, two stories ago, there was someone I spoke to on another story I was working in. Maybe you want to call her. Um, or, hey, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. There was, there was a kind of a, a the, the benefit of working as a group was quite extraordinary, and there was a real richness and depth to that. And I, and we had each other's backs in many cases. So, you know, in terms of making mistakes and, you know, as you know, as any journalist knows, you make mistakes and, and just the process even of fact checking, you know, at Forbes magazine, we had entire teams of fact checkers. And I still today, because I started my career as a fact checker where, you know, you, you literally would get fired because you had misspelled a CEO's name or for, and not, you know, checked it you learn to be extremely precise. And I do that still today. I sit there with my articles that today are freelance articles and I will go through them and I go back, harp back to the training I had as a fact checker at the beginning of my career. And there were all these things that we knew we had to do to fact check. You had to go back to printed sources, for example. We were always told, for example, a, an annual report to double check the name of a CEO just as by one, by one example. But you, you, know, and you knew that you couldn't just use other printed sources to fact check. There, were, there was a kind of a rigor and we could afford that rigor because you had a whole team, because you had full libraries and librarians to help you, because you had research staff, because you had layers of editors. And, Today, um, I write an article and I'm very much flying alone. I'm lucky if I have an editor looking at it all that closely. There's, a, I think, in general, a sense that because things are going live di only digitally for the most part, they can be changed. I mean, if there's a mistake, you know, that you can always change things after the fact. So the, the pressure and the emphasis is on the speed and on the quick turnaround and on kind of breaking the story before someone else breaks it. And that has pluses. And, but from my perspective, if you do what I love to do, which is deep um, investigative or at least deep diving, slow moving journalism, it's very hard to do that kind of work in today's environment. Mm. What are, the stories that, you know, interest you today? You know, I started out my career really as a journalist covering business, finance, Wall Street. And that wasn't because I love business, finance, and Wall Street. I mean, I, I'm perfectly interested. I'm not uninterested in it. But it was just happenstance, as so many of these things are when one is starting out a career. When I was at Columbia Journalism School, um, I happened to kind of stand out as someone who was especially good at reading a balance sheet and understanding how numbers work. And I think a lot of journalists almost intuitively have a tendency to shy away from finance and numbers. It's not typically an area that they feel really comfortable with. And I think maybe because my father was a businessman, because he was an entrepreneur, and because I grew up where every day, practically, you know, at the kitchen table, 
the discussion was about business, about financing a startup company, about trying to refinance debt, you know, whatever it was that was bedeviling my father's company, that moment was what we would be discussing at the dinner table, at the breakfast table. And so I think that made me almost um, without even knowing it, it sort of seeped into me and it came naturally to me. And so when I went out uh, at Columbia Journalism School to look for a job, it, it just was kind of a no brainer, you know, the Forbes and the Fortunes and the Economist and I went to the FT and I, they were all hiring like crazy because of course Wall Street in the 90s was exploding and there was a tremendous demand for financial journalism and so it was an opportunity and the first people who offered me jobs happened to be in this area. You know, did I, might I have preferred to write about politics? Perhaps, but practically every other person I was at journalism school with wanted those jobs and so this just was a niche and I got a job and I was damn lucky to get a job as far as I could tell and then once I started it, and in fact, it turned out I was quite good at it. I did really understand how business worked. But more than that, I also just thought, found the kind of poetry in it, for lack of a better word. I mean, this was the explosion of, of really kind of Wall Street going fairly, fairly mainstream in the 90s in many ways. And, and the stories were so exciting. And one of the things that I learned in particular working under the editor John Huey at Fortune Magazine, who was one of the best editors I've ever had, luck, who I've been lucky enough to have, was he was someone who could see the sex appeal, for lack of a better term, and that was a term he used, in business. And he was one of the people who in that period really played up the glamour of business and the whole idea of kind of CEOs as celebrities. And that was very much pushed by John Huey. Of course, there were people at the Wall Street Journal doing it. I mean, it was there were other publications too, but I think John Huey at Fortune Magazine at that very moment that I was there really understood that you could create a marvelous story that was really about power and, um, and was about glamor and was about all the things that many people who don't think they have any interest in business were interested in. And when I then was recruited by Graydon Carter, who was the longtime editor of Vanity Fair magazine, he understood this right away, that for Vanity Fair's audience, which you would have thought could not have been further away from Fortune's audience, he understood that in fact that wasn't the case at all, that he, had, he was running a, a so-called mainstream magazine. It wasn't a business magazine, and yet, he was delighted to hire me. He wanted to hire me to write, again, you know, business stories with, quote, sex appeal, which basically meant writing about um, kind of glamorous CEOs, for lack of a better word. And whether it was, you know, I'm trying to think of stories I did at Vanity Fair, but Steve Wynn, for example, the, the casino um, magnet um, was a classic story that I did for for Vanity Fair. I did a big piece on Greenwich, Connecticut and the explosion of ridiculously overpriced homes there that had were, were, were happening as a result of the money accumulating in the hedge fund industry. I did um, a major piece on, on the AOL Time Warner 
disastrous merger, which turned out to be, become a book later on. But Graydon Carter saw those stories as being not just business stories, but stories that were of interest to any Vanity Fair reader. Because that's, that's an interesting way of putting it. It's like, oh, you know, the movie Wolf of Wall Street, people really glamorize these, these business leaders and things like that. Do you think that, uh, 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 that this kind of carried on to Silicon Valley, to that side of the, the country where it also kind of has a similar type of image? Do you think that, I guess, the same thing is going on over there? You have companies like Verge and all those. I, I think familiar? that we've, we've, in America in particular, um, Canada maybe a little less so, but certainly Canada as well, Europe, I think most of the Western world, I would say the whole world at this point, until very recently, I think we were very much caught up in a system where more than anything, we have revered money and for better or worse. And I think that journalism, celebrityhood and money and the whole culture and kind of worship of billionaires and of course, Silicon Valley having been an extraordinary source of wealth creation in the last decades has come to be central to that. And I think that at some point for me, this became really problematic because I got to a point where I had been really writing about the rich, for lack of a better word, for a long time, you know, for 10, 15 years. And I just started to really question myself. I started to, to wonder whether this was really why I had decided to be a journalist. And it didn't feel consequential to me anymore. And I began to, it, it began to feel rote for one thing, but I would say more critically, it just didn't seem like it mattered. And I think, and I, I don't wanna sound corny, but I think I did basically one day say to myself, I need to be writing about subjects that matter to me. And I need to be writing about subjects that I feel are important. And I need to be writing about people and topics who I think the world needs to know about. And the world does not need to know about one more rich person. Mm. And I don't have anything against rich people. Um, I, I truly don't. I mean, my father was a great entrepreneur and businessman, and it would be incredibly hypocritical of me to criticize great entrepreneurs and business people. I respect them. I admire the culture of wealth creation in um, the United States, which has become my adopted home. And I have tremendous respect for the men and women who pull that off. But I didn't go into journalism to write glowing articles. Not that my articles were glowing, by the way, as you know, but whether tough or not glowing, but they, I didn't go into journalism just to write about rich people. And I began to pivot, I think, coincidentally, as it turns out, or maybe not coincidentally, maybe I in my own way sensed something in the air, but I began to really pivot around the same time that the, um, that the market, we were about to hit the sort of the bubble. 
And we were starting to see more than ever the beginning of that huge gap between the very rich and the poor. We were beginning to see um, a, a real sense, I think, of unease that something had gone awry. The prices that the very rich were paying, whether it was for homes at the very, very high end, whether it was for works of art, whether it was for mega yachts, there was a kind of explosion that really made me uneasy. And I know it made other people uneasy, certainly, mm. uh, but it made me uneasy. And I remember distinctly learning about the work that the economist Jeffrey Sachs was doing to end poverty in Africa. Mm. And this was in 2006. And I went to Graydon Carter and I said, you know, I know this isn't the kind of story I normally write about. And it's not exactly sexy, you know? I mean, you've got people starving, but do you think you'll let me write it? And, you know, again, to the great credit of having an editor with whom you have a long relationship and an, an editor who trusts you, he said to me, look, Nina, it doesn't really sound like my story kind of story, to be honest, but I trust you'll figure out what to do with this. Like, go for it, right? And that, to circle back to where we started this conversation, is, again, part of what makes that kind of magazine journalism so valuable, where you have a relationship and you know that you're being paid to dig deeply, to try to figure out what a story is, even before you know what the story is. Mm. You know, the, the great um, journalist, author, nonfiction writer, Robert Caro, um, he, he always said this lovely thing, I think it's in, in his recent book about, called Working, about his style of, of journalism and, and his research. And he's, of course, famous for the remarkable research he does for his books. But I, I remember the, the quote, he said, you know, the more facts you accumulate, the closer you come to whatever truth there is. Mm. And the point is that, you, you know, part of the reason why being permitted, having the license to dig deeply, to spend, and I, I'm not kidding, a basic article for me, a basic article um, is at least four months. And I just finished an article that has taken me a year and a half to do. And why I've been reporting it all the way through watching what's happening. But certainly at Vanity Fair, I never finished an article in less than four months of reporting. And in the case of, of, of going and doing that kind of that kind of deep reporting, you have to have an editor who says, you know, go for it. We'll cover your travel expenses. Follow Jeffrey Sachs to Africa, which I did. You know, bumble along three different countries. I'm not traveling first class, by the way. I don't want you to get the wrong impression. I'm certainly, you know, staying in very simple accommodation. But someone is willing, someone was willing in those days to spend $10,000 just on expenses. And that is a luxury that, as you know, is now unimaginable. <laughs> and in my case, you know, when I was given the go-ahead to write this article about the economist Jeffrey Sachs and his work in ending poverty in Africa, it opened my whole career, or moved my whole career, I should say, in a new way, because I then was able to to follow a very different kind of story. It was like being in grad school or taking a crash course, in this case, in development economics or in poverty, right? I'd spent most of my career at that point just writing about the very rich 
And suddenly I decided that's not what I wanted to do. I want to do something very different. And I was, had the license to do that. So I wrote this piece for Graydon Carter um, about this economist's efforts to end poverty in Africa. And that became my next book, um, The Idealist, which I wrote all about the efforts to end extreme poverty in Africa. It's a book I'm incredibly proud of. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a real, it was, it was a real shift for me. And to go back, I think, to what one of you was asking me, it, I think that allowed me to develop the confidence to see that the skills that I had as a reporter were not, did not need to be confined to one area. I'm not a beat reporter. There are beat reporters and they're incredibly important because you need to develop your particular sources, let's say in Washington, if you're covering the White House or you need to develop your particular sources in Ottawa, if you're if you're covering um, politics in Canada, but or you need to develop your sources in Detroit if you're covering the car industry. But I've never done that. Instead, I would say that most of my stories, and certainly in recent years, have been starting absolutely from ground zero. And it's very hard because you jump into a subject knowing absolutely nothing. I mean, nothing. Mm. Um, you know, I did a piece on the Metropolitan Opera. I don't think I'd been to an opera more than twice in my life when I did that story. And in a matter of four or five months reporting that story, I probably went to 50 operas. And I learned everything there was to know about operas. I did a story on, um, on for, for the Atlantic on a, um, an effort to end world hunger and sort of change agricultural methods. I know almost nothing about agriculture, I'm embarrassed to say. I didn't grow up on a farm. Um, I mean, you know, really, none, I did not grow up in a kibbutz. I mean, none, none of the above. And it was, again, a deep dive. How do seeds work? How does fertilizer work? Um, what, what does it take to have high yield farming? And so on and so forth. And, and I say that just because to me that, is what I love most about what I do and about my job, which is I can decide, that makes it seem overly simplistic, but I, I, I can to some degree decide that I want to dig deeply into a subject and I can usually, knock on wood, even still today, convince someone to let me do that. And I may get paid a fraction of what I once got paid to do it, but I can usually, I can usually do that. I just finished reporting a, a major article um, about a remarkable program based in Kenya that helps find exceptionally talented young people who come from very, very poor backgrounds and helps prepare them and bring them into and get scholarships at some of the best universities in North America. And I kind of shadowed two or three of the students who were selected for the program and spent months and months visiting their families in Kenya, uh, going into the slums of Nairobi, going into the most remote parts of North Africa to to or, or uh, northeastern Africa, I should say, to to visit them there, and you know that's that's kind of 
that's an, uh, it makes you feel like you're doing something that matters and that has consequences. Just going quickly back to the uh, the conversation about CEOs and your experience having reported on CEOs, is it fair to say that you were sort of looking to sort of explore their the psychological side to these people and less so about the actual money side of it? The most interesting part of writing about CEOs is to understand how people in power act and what motivates people. And um, I, I just, I think that's what I loved the most about my business reporting and about writing these profiles of CEOs. And I was very much influenced by having grown up with a father who was an entrepreneur and a businessman and who was very single-minded himself. And I've written about my father before. One of my books um, is about Claritone, the first company he started. And it was a terrible, infamously uh, terrible failure, catastrophe. He went, it kind of went very, very high and then it crashed and, and burned and he was humiliated and he would go on to say for really the rest of his career that it had more influence on him than anything else he ever did because of the humiliation uh, combined with, of course, the lessons of failure. But I think growing up with a father like that, I was so acutely aware of the drive for power, the drive for success, the drive what it is that makes, presumably, it's not just CEOs at all. I, I don't, I've never written about politicians, but no doubt this is true whether you're, you know, in any business, in any field, that, that, that kind of motivation to succeed is, is very similar. And for me, having understood it very well in my own father, it was familiar to me whether I was with Steve Wynn whether I was with Mickey Drexler, who was then the head of, of Gap, whether I was with Leonard Lauder, who's the head of the, the Lauder Beauty Company. And they all had a lot of characteristics in common. And I found it fascinating. And I think, again, maybe having grown up the way I grew up, I wasn't so much impressed by it at all because it was very familiar to me, but I was interested to see how it propelled them forward, in what ways it often would end up being sort of an Achilles heel, mm. so to speak, and they would trip up on it. I've kind of mixed a lot of metaphors there. I apologize for that. And it it was that, yeah, I, I think that that was fascinating. There was the psychological part of it. There was the, the power of it, how they got that power, what they did with it, where they went with it, and um, how it, it shaped them and how it shaped the world around them. And I found that marvelous to write about and report about. Mm. Until I think after doing it for as long as I did it, some of the stories, a lot of the stories, there began, it began to feel a little rote. I think I used the word rote mm -hmm. earlier. And it, it just, it, it wasn't as much, it wasn't as stimulating as it had been. 
So um, yeah, but I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. It wasn't the business per se. I was lucky enough that my understanding of business and my ability to understand numbers and discern uh, balance sheets and profit and loss statements, that allowed me the point of entry to tell these stories that mm -hmm. for others who aren't as good with numbers or with business may have had a harder time as a point of entry. You, you uh, mentioned uh, one of your interviews, I saw that uh, you, you followed the, uh, the CEO of Time Warner and you thought he was uh, like a really remarkable person. So I was just wondering, a quick question, who do you think was the most like, uh, I guess, interesting or notable uh, CEO that you followed? I love that question. I mean, I have to say that that I I really think this is going to sound so silly, but I have such fond memories of just about every major article I've written about and every CEO I've tagged along with. I, for one thing, I'm always grateful to the CEOs I've written about or leaders that I've written about because as anyone who's ever had a journalist write about him or her knows, it's an incredibly intrusive process. Mm. Not just because we journalists are asking way too many questions, but we basically demand. I mean, particularly if you're the kind of journalist that I am, you just demand access. And I have, with all of the people I've written about, spent not an hour, not two hours, days and days with people. And in some cases, like poor Jeffrey Sachs, you know, I, I traveled with him for weeks at a time. In the case of both, I mean, I, Mickey Drexler, who was then the head of Gap, I was with him for days. I flew on the, his company's private plane with him. I, in the case of Steve Wynn, I was in three different cities with him. I went with him, not just in Las Vegas, I flew with him on his plane to the ski resort where he had a, um, a, a home. I went skiing with him. You know, uh, Leonard Lauder, I went to visit stores with him. I also, of course, interviewed him in his office. Those are the standard. But in each of those cases, you're, you're, you're trying to be with your subjects in all the places where they're most likely going to reveal themselves for what they really are. And you're trying to um, put them or see them, observe them, write about them in places where they're going to be as natural as possible. And you try to see them where you can be. You're never going to be a fly in the wall. The situation is always somewhat artificial, but you do the best you can to try to be a fly in the wall. So in the case of Jeffrey Sachs in Africa, I sat in on his meetings with heads of state in Africa, Africa, you know, African presidents. I sat in with him with the uh, head of the UN, a actual meetings where negotiations are going on with, um, with Mickey Drexler, where he had meetings with all of his design staff and he was freaking out because he thought their newest designs sucked. And, and I think all of those kinds of experiences are critical to doing the kind of journalism that I love and I think many people love. And so you come away having spent that kind of time with these men, and I'm afraid to say they're pretty well all men in my case, 
and you have sort of soft spots for some, some you just can't stand, you can't wait to get away from them, you're just done with it, it's suffocating. Um, some you, you come away with a tremendous respect for, although you might not like them personally. And I, I kind of have soft spots for just about, just about all of them. And, and I say that even while many of them have kind of trash talked me after the fact. I mean, Jeffrey Sachs, who's really one of the most brilliant people I've ever interviewed, has had nothing but bad things to say about me since my book came out. Um, and I understand where he's coming from. My book is very tough on him. My book calls out um, his big plan for saving the world. And so I understand that his degree of vulnerability on that front and why he was not happy with it. Interestingly, someone else I was very tough on was Jerry Levin, the mm. former CEO of Time Warner. And to Jerry Levin's credit, remarkably, he actually said, you know, Nina, you got it exactly right. And I was so taken aback, I nearly fell off my chair because I thought, oh, he's going to kill me when he sees what I've said about him, you know? Um, and I think that this whole issue of kind of dealing with the egos of the subject you're writing with, writing about is is interesting too, because I think back, for example, to mention Steve Wynn again. I don't know why I keep bringing him up, but for some reason that story stands out. Um, but Steve Wynn, for example, I was assigned to do that story by Graydon Carter, and I was delighted to be able to do the story. I was fascinated by the the remarkable enterprise that Steve Wynn was setting up in Vanity Fair, and he was just starting up another major hotel, the Wynn, Wynn Las Vegas. He was spending two and a half plus billion dollars on it. It was extraordinary. So it was a great story. But when Steve Wynn found out that I was doing the article, I, of course, I called up his PR people. I said, I want him doing this article. Will you guys grant us access? He called up um, Graydon Carter directly. And he said, uh, yeah, you know, Graydon, listen about this story. I'm delighted to have Vanity Fair do the story, but I don't want Monk on the story. Mm. And Graydon said, well, what's the issue? And he said, look, um, you know, I don't want this to be some like tough business story. And he, he asked, I'm not going to name names, but he requested that Graydon instead put a kind of society reporter on to report the story. Mm -hmm. And Graydon, to his credit, said to him, look, Steve, it's either Monk or it's no one, and which is what happened. But if you've wow. read that story, it's a tough story. And I'm, at the one hand, I think very laudatory of what Steve Wynn built up, what he accomplished in terms of business, his remarkable creativity and uh, the gambles that he took to get to where he did. And at the same time, I point out, I, I really call out his vanity. I call out his questionable behavior. I call, I mean, there are a lot of things that are, that are called out in that article. So it, it's, it's, always, it's always an interesting juggling act, um, your relationship with the people that you're writing about. Is there anything you'd like to leave us with? You know, to go back to where we kind of started about how journalism has changed, I, I decided 
last year for the first time in my career to apply for a fellowship. And I would have laughed if you told me 20 years ago that I would even apply for fellowships. I would have thought my mother was an academic and I would have always thought, you know, fellowships, isn't that something that academics do? And um, I was a magazine writer. This just didn't seem to be relevant. And I, I think I realized more and more that the kind of work that I want to do, that I need to do, this deep dive, independent, broad, um, thoughtful journalism, nonfiction reporting that turns into books very often, that you need to kind of come under the protection, so to speak, of some sort of larger entity. And historically, the protection that I had, again, that's an odd word, was that I worked for great editors at great magazines. And now that that really doesn't exist, that kind of relationship, what I'm so grateful for is that I was selected to be a Coleman Fellow at the New York Public Library for uh, 2021. And it's a marvelous fellowship that's not only paid, but much more importantly, gives you access to the deep archives of the greatest library, research library in the world, with the staff to help you do the research you need to pull together the kind of project I want to do. And so I'm going to be spending the year at the New York Public Library. I actually have an office there. Uh, drawing on dozens of interviews, troves of letters, diaries, oral histories, important archival material to write a work of creative nonfiction that is about the Holocaust in Hungary. And it's mm. going to be, I'm going to be recounting it, the interwoven stories of three family members, including a great uncle, uh, my grandmother, and my father, whose lives all read like novels. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's going to be a deeply researched work of nonfiction and very much a whole new path for me in my career. Congratulations. Congratulations. Uh, yeah. That's wonderful. Thank um, you. I actually kind of wanted to ask this uh, question about your father's experience and your family's experience having having dealt with Nazi Germany in their own way through Hungary did, did that ever inform the way you do your journalism or or any part of your journalism pursuits you know it's a it, it's a really interesting question that i haven't thought about before um, i think that I think that when you grow up hearing about what your family has had to endure to get to where they are, and um, when I heard, and my father, like so many Holocaust survivors, of course, told the stories, or maybe not so many, because I've heard other people have a very different point of view, but my father really constantly, constantly, constantly talked about the experience of escaping Hungary under the Nazi occupation in 1944 and the remarkable journey of, of getting out and then making it eventually to Canada as a young man and how much he depended on the kindness of strangers 
to get to where he was. And I think that, I think it, what it does is it's a very humbling, it's a humbling experience because you're always reminded that you need to be grateful for where you are, that nothing is to be taken for granted. And that I think more than anything that things can change at, in the blink of the blink of an eye. And maybe that, that makes you much more aware as you suggest to injustices in the world generally, mm. I think it makes you more aware of the, some sense of urgency to try to accomplish something, to try to do something that you feel proud of, that feels to you like it matters. However, you know, whatever parameters you set for that. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I, I have felt that the pressure my father put on me was definitely this sense that you were supposed to be aware of just how lucky you were and how much had been given you to you in so many ways and that a lot was expected. And I try in a very, very small way to satisfy that within myself and to make sure that what I'm doing feels like it's contributing to something larger than myself. This was a really lovely uh, conversation, Nina. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye.